media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. You may be seated and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We're after a kind of an Easter break and kind of a little bit of a time uh, away from the teaching there in Mark, we're getting back today. And we're actually going to cover quite a bit of scripture because I just believe that this scripture uh, belongs together. Uh, hopefully you'll understand that as we would go through uh, this morning. Mark chapter 8, starting with verse 1. Sufficient. Webster defines the su- sufficient as enough to meet the needs of a situation or a proposed end. We use that word, we, we claim sufficiency in different things, but, but really think about that definition. Enough to meet the needs of a situation are a proposed end. That this is the end, and, and so we, it's sufficient to get us to this place, this demarcation that we already kind of have in our mind and our heart. Sufficient. We use it in a lot of different things, from the trivial to uh, the deep. Uh, do we have sufficient gas to get to work tomorrow morning? You know, is it, are you riding E or do you have a full tank or whatever? It's one of those things that we just kind of think about. It's kind of a trivial thing, but until you've run out of gas, then it's not so trivial. If we're going away and let's say that we're going to take a camping trip and there's not another store within miles and miles and miles and you're going to be out camping for the weekend or for a week, do we have sufficient food? Do we have enough for this desired end? We're going to leave on Saturday. We're going to come back on a Saturday. There's no other places that we can get food. Do we have sufficient food for this trip? Uh, sometimes we get and we think a little bit deeper. Do we have sufficient money to retire? Should we retire at this age, this age, or, or is it going to be one of those things? Have we kind of resided to the fact, no, I guess I'll be working forever. And we begin to think about all those things, and we use that word sufficiency because it really does fit that definition. Is there enough to meet the needs for this described or proposed end? This morning, as we look at that word, I wanted to look at it in a kind of a practical way, but also in a very much in a spiritual way, in a theological way. When we begin to get into the, the theology of the Bible, we begin to see that the Bible points entirely to Jesus Christ as the sufficiency of our need to be right with a holy God. For example, back in the 1500s, the early 1500s, there was a question of how is one right with a holy God? And a man by the name of Martin Luther uh, nailed some things, some theses to the, to the uh, thing, kind of in a, um, uh, in a revolt, at least, to the Catholic Church at the time, and, and said, okay, you're putting so much emphasis on these uh, different uh, things that man does, and yet the Bible kind of tells us a different story. And so he began to to write out these 95 truths, these 95 statements that says, okay, here's what the Bible actually says. And from that Reformation movement, all of a sudden we have the five solas. We have, and that's Latin, a Latin term, means scripture alone, faith alone, that we come to know Christ in faith alone, by grace alone, not by works of ourselves, 
And that is rest entirely in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. And so a lot of people know today the five solas, these, these five things that we make proclamation that line up theologically with the statements of the Bible. So that's one application. But even there, hundreds of years ago, we see this kind of battle going on. Where is the sufficiency? Is it in us following routines and maybe going to church, maybe doing this or that? Or is the sufficiency found in God's provision of Jesus Christ? And 500 years ago, as the Reformation started, Martin Luther went against the established church of the time and said, when we look in the Bible, this is what we find. This morning, we could find our sufficiency in, well, you know, I'm a good person. We could try to find our sufficiency. Well, you know, I go to church. We might even add to that sufficiency. Well, you know, I do drop a $20 bill on the plate every once in a while. And we would be able to kind of look at these different things that we would do. And we're going, okay, this is where I'm right with the holy God. And yet those things do not line up with the Bible. Certainly, those are good things to do. I I recommend that you come to church every Sunday. I would even recommend that you, you drop a $20 bill in the, in the, we don't do an offering plate, but in the box back there. I mean, those are good things. We're not making light of those things, but none of those things. You could do that to your nth degree, and those are not going to make you right with the Holy God. Only the work of Christ did that. And so this morning as we get into this passage, what we're actually going to see, and your Bible may have it this way, is three different parts of what I would say is the same story. Three different sections that easily we could preach those alone, but I'm going to preach, try to preach all 21 verses today because I think that they're a trilogy. I think that Mark is writing in a perspective of trying to show us the same truth, but just through three different lenses. So Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, and keep in your mind the whole time the sufficiency of Christ. This is where Mark And the word of God keeps on pointing us the sufficiency of Christ. Mark chapter 8, verse 1 through 3. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some some of them have come from far away. So Jesus, he's been teaching. They've been obedient students and learners, and they've been there for three days. And maybe they packed a little bit of a lunch or something, but over a three-day period, that's probably exhausted. And so Jesus looks upon this crowd, and he says, you know, not only are they here, and they seem to be hungry even right now, but if they start this march home, some of them have come from far away, they'll never make it. And the Bible says that he had compassion upon them. Now, if you remember, it was just two chapters ago in Mark chapter 6 that we see the feeding of how many? 5,000. This is going to be a feeding of 4,000. There are some people, very few in number, that said, oh, I think that Mark is just repeating the story. Number one, I I count on the intelligence of God uh, that that God gave to Mark, that he knows the difference of these two stories. Plus, they're pretty unique. Even though they have some similarities, they have some unique features. I believe with all my heart, with no doubt that these are two different events. And even the phraseology is going to point to that. So here we have these uh, this crowd that is gathered. 
4,000 plus, we don't know if the 4,000 is 4,000 men and their wives and their children, or if it's 4,000 altogether, we would suspect by the way that the Greek is structured there that it's 4,000 plus, that he's just talking about the men, and that this could be as many as 10, 12, 15,000 people. And they're there, they're listening to Christ, they're attracted to the message of Christ, and yet they're hungry. Look what happens in Mark chapter 8, verse 4. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in the desolate place? Now, this is kind of strange. What chapter did we say was the feeding of the 5,000? Chapter 6. Now, even though it's been a couple months since we covered that, because we took a break for Easter and we had that sermon series... Folks, I don't know if this is a week in between, if this is a month in between, but you know, when somebody feeds 5,000 with a couple fish and a couple loaves, I would think that that would stick in your mind. Okay, I would think that they would still remember. Ah, but remember what he did last time with those little bit of fish and loaves. And yet, here's what they ask. Jesus said, we need to feed these people. I have compassion upon them. There's a lot of people. And they're overwhelmed with their circumstances, and they have the boldness or the foolishness, one or the other, I'm still trying to figure it out, to to say out loud, how can one feed these people with bread here in a desolate place? Almost the same words that we see back in Mark chapter 6, verse 36. And look at the response, and he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. Jesus goes on and he takes the fish, he takes the loaves, he multiplies it just like he did last time, even though the numbers are different. It was 12 last time. Now he's got seven. And and yet we see that the result is the same. They eat and then it says that they're satisfied. Remember a couple months ago when we were preaching about the feeding of the 5,000, how that was the real miracle? That you could ever gather 5,000 people and the gluten-free people and the diabetics and the this and the that and the Weight Watchers people and all these different ones all said that they were able to eat and be satisfied. Now, I'm certainly not making fun of all those. Carly and I are on a diet and so now we're, in, I mean, I walked through Sam's the other day and I went up and down and up and down the, and there was, I got depressed because I said, we can't eat anything in this entire store, this entire warehouse of food. And we can't eat anything except those fish right over there. So I'm not making fun of our diet restrictions or our choices that we make. But when was the last time that you were take, able to take at least five people and everybody was satisfied? It just doesn't happen with human nature. But 5,000 ate and were satisfied. And look what happens here. Mark chapter 8, verse 8. And they ate and were satisfied. Here's part of the miracle right there, guys. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Last time it was 12, now it's seven. Looks amazingly. Now look back at Mark. Look what it said in Mark. And they all ate, Mark chapter 6, verse 42 and 43, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. So almost a duplicate. And that's why some people, again, very few, would say, I made Maybe Mark's just repeating. Maybe he forgot that he said it a couple chapters ago. Now, others would say maybe he's just a very non-creative writer. Why does he just kind of almost use the same words? I mean, can you imagine? I love the Braves. I love watching the Braves. And uh, it's one of those, what if the sports announcer for the Braves just simply said, and they played nine innings and the Braves won? 
They played on these, and the Braves lost. And that was the only description you had. You're going, man, I don't, I think you need to find a new sportscaster. Give me some details. Give me some differences, because surely all these games, 162 games, don't come down to just wins and losses. There's variety in there. And a good sportscaster would bring out all those different varieties. Well, here, is Mark just a non-creative writer? This is all he knows? Or is there a purpose in why he would be so repetitive and the way that he describes these two miracles. See, every day, you and I are confronted with the sufficiency of Christ in our lives. And I've told you many times, isn't it kind of strange that if I asked you right now that if you're a Christian, if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and I said, do you believe that one day you will go heaven, that, that what Christ has done is sufficient for your salvation, that you will spend all of eternity in heaven? And every time I ask that question, everybody goes, yes, yes, I believe that, I believe that. And yet, on the day-to-day, we can believe him for eternity, which is forever. And yet, April 26 is going to be a challenge to us. Guys, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm not, not trying to provoke guilt. But isn't that strange? That we believe something for eternity... And yet, tomorrow, we're going to be challenged. Now, now, why is that? Because that's right in our face. It, sometimes it's easier to have faith in something that's far off, or what we think is far off, than something that's staring us right in our face, like a sickness, or a huge financial bill, or whatever it is. Those are realities that we're holding in our hands. And so I get that. But I think this is where Jesus gets this too. What a compassionate and kind God that we have. And yet, here's the question. Is Christ sufficient for me? Not just for my eternity, but for my daily life. Is Jesus enough? In no way am I saying that we do not have lives that are filled with complexities. But in one way, if we really want to think all the way through this, are not all these complexities down to the same need that we have? In other words, that Christ is enough. No matter the need, he's enough. No matter the complexity, and some of you have far more complex lives right now than anything that I and Carly could imagine. Please do not hear a belittling of that. Please do not hear in any way an insensitivity to that. Believe me, we are highly sensitive to the deep, deep needs of people in CS right today. But I would not change the answer at all. Is he sufficient? He's sufficient. I I mean, in a way, we would expect unbelief to be with those that aren't believers, that would not be professing Christians, or those that say, okay, I just don't know that I really believe in Jesus, and I don't believe that he's the Son of God. And that's the second part of this trilogy. If we read on in verses 11 and 12, uh, they depart from that place, with the disciples scratching their head, even after this miraculous feeding of the 4,000. And what is the next group that they begin to entertain upon this travel? It's the Pharisees. And, and if we read in Matthew, the complimentary story, the parallel story, we see the Herodians are with them. And again, as I've mentioned before, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other. But what they hated more was Christ. And so they become kind of buddies in this whole attack against Jesus Christ. So as they confront, as Jesus comes upon the Pharisees, look what happens in verse 11 and 12. It's the second part of our trilogy here. 
the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, they had already witnessed people that were blind that could see. People that were lame could walk. They've witnessed a lot of things either firsthand or they've heard about it. They've seen that because we knew that they were Pharisees, at least some of the Pharisees, were at a lot of these different miracles. And yet they asked for a sign. And in fact, if you notice, it says a sign from where? From heaven. Now, why would they use that terminology? They're making a distinction there. All these other things that they've seen were on earth. And there was kind of a, a myth, kind of a thought, that if something was really from God, they would see it in the heavens. In other words, God, make it dark in the middle of the day. Make it this. And then that was a sign that you couldn't just duplicate some miracle that kind of looked to our eyes to be miraculous. But, you know, that's right there in front of me. Do something big. What does Jesus say? I mean, I'll, I'll prove myself. No. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. Now, I don't know you, I've been married 37 years. And if I say something and my wife sighs deeply, this isn't a good first step, okay? I have either exhausted, you know, her patience. She thinks I'm the most foolish guy in the world that I would even make this statement. You know, when somebody sighs, that's not usually a sign of affirmation. If I said, you know, Taylor, man, can we meet tomorrow at 3.30 in the morning? And you went, I'm going, I'm taking this as at least initially as a no. <laughs> and he sighs deeply in his spirit. He says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to you to this generation. Now, is he just stubborn? Is he just ornery? Is he just having a bad day? Now, here's, here's the whole thing, guys. When we look at this in context, Jesus is saying, you want a sign? The sign's right in front of you. The sign's right in front of you. You want something from the heavens? I came from heaven. I made the heavens. You want these things somehow to prove to yourself when the sign that God has set is right before you in the flesh. Now, guys, I kind of understand them because how many times in your life have you said, okay, God, if you really want me to do this, just give me a sign. God, if you really are there, just, you know, speak to me in the middle of the night or something. Folks, we know our feeble faith at times and how easy it is to trip over, even people of faith, to trip over the circumstances that are in front of us. We, we get that. And yet, what would Jesus' answer be to us? I mean, if I'm asking something really but God, just God, just give me a sign. I wonder how many times I've made God sigh in the spirit. Bobby, I've already given you a sign. I, I've given you a Messiah. And, he, and I, now I dwell in your very heart. And I dwell in your life. I come and I live in you. And I've sealed you until the day of redemption. Why would you need a sign when I've done the most miraculous thing that holy God has come and dwelt you? And then all of a sudden, don't you feel like about this big? <laughs> if not smaller? <laughs> No, of course, God, you've, you've already provided everything that I need. And yet that's what happens here. They ask for a sign for heaven. And, and they, Jesus sighs in disbelief. Jesus refuses to give the sign, uh, not because he can't, 
Not because he's not loving and he's not patient. Because they said, if you don't believe what's right in front of you, then, then any sign is not going to be sufficient. The sufficiency is in me. Now look to the third part of the trilogy. We're going pretty fast through this. But I want you to see this connected because I really believe that Mark wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for this purpose. First, the feeding of 4,000. Then they have this confrontation with the Pharisees. Prove to us that you are the Son of God. Give us a sign. No, I'm not going to give you a sign. Mark chapter 8, verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned him, that is, Jesus cautioned him, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. There, we can kind of see that these two groups were there. And, and that's a whole sermon in itself, so we're not trying to be brief to kind of just scuttle over the top of this. But we want to see the connection of this. And so Jesus is trying to use this, again, as a teaching moment. And what he's really desiring in his disciples is maturity. And he's trying to caution them here about what had just happened with the Pharisees. And yet, what are they doing? They're blaming each other about who forgot the bread. I mean, really, that's what's happening. (laughs) Not trying to be silly or funny. That's what they're actually arguing about. Now, who is like that here this morning? Jesus is trying to teach me some deep thing about himself and how he's trustworthy and he's giving me a warning about this. And I'm going, but you know, I think Carly forgot to bring the bread. (laughs) And she's going, no, I know who forgot to bring the bread. (laughs) And we're squabbling here left and right. And God's going, he's sighing. I'm trying to help you here. And we're worried about who forgot the bread. It'd actually be funny if it wasn't so true. We actually witnessed the sufficiency of Christ twice, in fact, in this trilogy. And Jesus is trying to teach them that they don't need a sign. The Pharisees don't, and and disciples, you don't need a sign. And all they can say is, I think Peter's the one that left the bread. No, I think it was this one. I think it was that one. And they're all blaming each other. If it wasn't so true, it'd be absolutely hilarious but it really isn't funny because we see that they have a great disconnect. And Jesus, his words of truth and his words of love are seen in, in the reaction. Again, truth and love. Hardness of truth, the beauty of love and the compassion of love. Look at his response, verse 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Notice what he says, the fact. He acknowledges that they have one loaf. (laughs) Why 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 are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And what's the last question that he asked there? Do you not remember? Now, I doubt that he said, do you not remember Mark chapter 6? Because, you know, they didn't have that gospel written yet. Do you not remember two weeks ago, a month ago, whatever that time period was in between these two things? Do you not remember what happened? 
And do you not remember what happened just yesterday when once again I was sufficient for the need of over 4,000 people? How eerily similar the words of these two chapters are before when they were scared to death that, that they saw, uh, you know, when they got in after the feeding of the 5,000, they got in the boat and remember they were going across and a storm came up or it was not so much a storm, but it was in the dead of night and they thought they saw a ghost. And who was that ghost? It turned out to be Jesus. And yet they said that they were, uh, remember, megas phobos. This degree. They were greatly afraid. And look what happened. Look what happened back when all that happened. Mark chapter 6, verse 51 and 52. And he, that is Jesus, got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. And they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What, what did he just ask them? <laughs> did you forget? Are, are your hearts hardened? Do your eyes not see? Do your ears not hear? Everywhere around you, I've, I've put this testimony of the sufficiency of me. And yet, I would agree, there's great need. There's facts. He said, the fact that you have no bread. He's not denying the facts. Folks, somebody tells you you have cancer. Jesus isn't going, ah, I just deny that fact. You have a certain bill that has to be paid or you lose this or you lose that. Jesus isn't denying the facts. What he's making much of is his sufficiency in face of the facts. Over and over and over we preach this. Why? Because this is the only sermon I have? No, because this is the story of the gospel. We're going along in Mark and yet we see this story, this theme repeat itself. Where man freaks out, oh, oh, oh. And God says, I'm sufficient. And my sufficiency is right before you. Mark chapter 8, verse 19 and 20. Look what Jesus points out once again. Again, he's speaking truth, but he's doing it lovingly and compassionately. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And just the other day, uh, in the seven of the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Understand what? Deep theology? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? What do they not understand? What, what is this question? Do you not yet understand? He's claiming his sufficiency. Because why is he putting back to baskets that fed everybody, but how much was left over? In other words, it's not just sufficient. I gave you more than sufficiency. You ate and were satisfied. You ate all that you could. And yet there was some left over. I gave you surplus. Do we have a God who's just sufficient? Or is he a God of surplus? In every spiritual thing. I would believe in every physical thing. I would believe in every emotional thing. That there's a sufficiency of Christ. And he's not just sufficient to a means to an end. But he is a God of surplus. I don't mean that as some name it, claim it kind of 
you know, you do this and God does that. No, I'm just saying this is his nature is that he is sufficient. So what a probing question. Do you not yet understand? I I could wear that t-shirt this morning. Perhaps you could wear that t-shirt this morning. I do not yet understand. (laughs) Is it because we have no faith? I don't think that's the answer. Is it because at times we have a weak faith? I believe that could be a possibility of answer. Why do we understand? I think it's because the reality of the things that we can see with our eyes and hear with with our ears, that's what he pointed to. Do do your eyes not yet see? Do your ears not yet? That we think of them and we react to them in a very human, physical nature, and yet... God has given you eyes, spiritual eyes, and he's given you ears, spiritual ears. And he says, okay, I want you to listen. And where do we find this hope? We find it in the word of God. We find it in the very spirit of God. Folks, there is really no other question that has more impact on our lives than the question of sufficiency of Christ. Based on all that he's revealed to you, all that he has done for you, can you rest this morning in the sufficiency of Christ? And I know the biblical answer, and I know the church answer, that yes. And yet, Monday the 25th is coming, or the 26th is coming. And our physical eyes and our physical ears, we hear and see things that freak us out. And that's when he says, okay, I want you to look with your spiritual eyes, and I want you to hear with your spiritual ears, and they will bring you understanding. Do you understand? Is Christ enough for me? Yes. We sing a song, I don't know if you noticed this, but we sing a song at the end of of preaching time, and we call it the reflection song. And, and really the intention that isn't to, okay, last amen and then we go. It's not just to kind of sum up things. It, it's called a reflection song because it really is our intention for us to reflect on the word of God that we've just heard, to reflect upon that in such a way that as we would sing back, that that would go even deeper. Because here's one thing that I've confessed, that as much work as we might put into a sermon or something like that, and work for hours and hours and hours, and then you hear for 30, 35 minutes, 40 minutes, I realize that many of us are more moved in a three-minute song than we are in a 35-minute sermon. I, I, I get that. I'm quite jealous of it, but I get it, okay? <laughs> but that's why we do a reflection song. We're going to sing a song this morning, Christ is enough for me. You can sing that as a prayer request, I want, I so desperately want you to be enough for me. I want spiritual eyes and spiritual ears for today and tomorrow and the days to come until you take me home and I see face to face totally that sufficiency. You can sing it today as a battle cry. Christ is enough for me. 
You, you just sing it from your heart. But as we would sing the song, that's the intention of a reflection song of why we sing these songs. It, it's not just to wrap up the service. It's for us to take the word of God that we've just been impacted with and confronted with and say, okay, where am I in this story? Do I, do I say this as a prayer request because I have great need? Do I say this as a battle cry? Because yes, Lord, we're taking on Monday and Tuesday and 2022 and 2025. You respond as you have need this morning to these words that reflect what we've read this morning. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, we know there's a part of us theologically if that we just know that you're sufficient that Christ's death and resurrection was sufficient to pay for our sins. We know that, that, that what you have put before us, Father, is sufficient for our needs. If you take care of little birds, then you're going to take care of us. Father, there's a part of us that gets that, and yet there's a part of us that are just like this, these disciples and these Pharisees, that when crunch time comes, Father, we, we begin to freak out a little bit. And so what we need this morning, Father, is not a sign from heaven. You've already given us the sign from heaven. His name is Jesus. We don't need you to pay that bill tomorrow as a sign of your faithfulness. You have already been faithful. Father, we just need spiritual eyes and spiritual ears so that we have a sensitivity to that faithfulness. So when that time of freaking out comes, Father, we can rest. We can rest, Father. We can rest in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and Him alone. And that's what we sing, Father. We sing this song as a prayer request. We sing it as a proclamation of our faith. We sing it this morning as a people in need to be affirmed in the truth that you have settled in your word. And we pray in our hearts and our minds. We love you, Father. And we thank you for the sufficient one, Christ our Lord. And it's in the power of his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.